Hillcrest's mission is this. We strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. If you want to join us in seeing that mission fulfilled, there's a variety of ways that you can do that, different ways that you can be involved, but also ways that you can support financially. And if you're wondering how to give at home, you can e-transfer to giving at hillcrestmj.com. You can visit us, hillcrestmj.com forward slash giving. You can mail a check or you can call us to set up a pre-authorized deposit. We want to say thank you to all of you who regularly support here at Hillcrest. We can see the kingdom of God advancing through your support. We know that the needs in our church and in our community are ongoing and we want to be able to respond to those needs in Jesus name. If you're not a regular supporter at Hillcrest, would you consider joining us? We believe we have an opportunity to bless people, to meet their needs and see many people come into the kingdom of God through your generosity. This is an opportunity to build into His eternal kingdom. Happy Mother's Day. I uh, love that video of all the kids. It's a day of expressing our gratitude towards our moms. I called my mother last night and I told her that I'd be teaching on the book of Revelation today. And she said, so there's no uh, sugary sermon just for moms? That's what she said. And you know, sometimes you have a great idea and then your mom questions it and then you wonder whether you're on the right track or not. But uh, Moms, we want to say that how much we appreciate you, especially moms who've been cooped up with their kids for 60 days straight, and uh, they haven't got to go anywhere, and you haven't either. Uh, God bless you. I'm sure the Government of Canada will be handing out medals for you soon, uh, but we are uh, excited about moms. Now, teaching on the book of Revelation on Mother's Day might seem a bit strange, but we've been on a journey as a church since September from the beginning of the Bible until the end. And now we've, we've gotten to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And this week and next week are our last two weeks talking about the overarching story of the entire Bible. And so the book of Revelation is one of the most perplexing books in the Bible. Lots of movies have been made about it. Many arguments have been started because of it. And most people just simply don't know what to do with it. And so let's jump in and let's start with some of the basic questions about the book of Revelation. First of all, who received and recorded this revelation? His name is John. Now, John and his brother James, along with Peter, were the three of the 12 disciples who were the closest to Jesus. In fact, there were several specific events and opportunities that they had access to that the others were off doing other things. And... Um, they were probably Jesus' closest friends. Jesus gave James and John a nickname. He called them the sons of, can you guess it at home? The sons of thunder. Peter and the sons of thunder. It's a great band name. I mean, I imagine they come from Winnipeg or something like that. But it's a great band name. Peter and the sons of thunder were Jesus' three closest buddies when he walked this earth. Now, why were they called the sons of thunder? Why were James and John called that? 
I don't know if anyone really knows why, but I have a theory. And it's from reading Luke chapter 9, 52 to 55. Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem because there was racial tension between the two people groups. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to send down fire from heaven to destroy them? Remember? Sons of thunder. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. I think James and John, when they initially met Jesus, there was a protective nature within them that got a little bit aroused, and they were a bit vengeful. You mess with Jesus, we're going to bring down the thunder on you. That was their mode of operation. Again, this is my theory. You know, John wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. Maybe if you're at home, you can just play my little trivia game right now. Who, which author, I mean, not, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit who inspired the whole New Testament, but which human author actually put pen to paper to uh, create the most content for the New Testament? Okay, has everybody guessed? Everybody had a stab at it? Would you believe number one is Luke? Did you know that? Were you guessing someone else? Luke is number one. He wrote 27% of the New Testament. Just two books, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Both history of the life of Jesus and history of the church. Do you know who number two is? Take a moment. Guess. It was the Apostle Paul. Now, he wrote about 13 letters. Now, it wasn't quite as much as Luke's because they were all smaller uh, portions. And do you know who number three was? It was the Apostle John, the person we're talking about today. He wrote the Gospel of John, three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. So Luke, 27% of the New Testament. Paul, about 23% of the New Testament. And John was about 20%. So one-fifth of our New Testament comes from the guy who received this revelation, one of the sons of thunder, the Apostle John. You know what? John, the son of thunder, was changed by the love of God. He was completely and totally changed. If you read the New Testament, you find nobody writes about the love of God more than John. In fact, no one writes about love, period, more than John. He writes about how important it is to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and strength and everything. He he writes about how God loved us so much, demonstrated his love for us on the cross. Uh, John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, that was recorded by the hand of John. God loves the world. We know that because of, we, many authors refer to it, but directly from John. So he more, wrote more about love than any other New Testament author, author. And when he referred to himself, he didn't say, he didn't use the nickname that Jesus gave him, Son of Thunder. He used a different name. He called himself the disciple Jesus loved. He, be, he went I think there was a transformation in John's life. He went from being the vengeful, bring the thunder guy to the guy who just couldn't stop talking about the love of God and how that spilled over into love for other people. So where was he when he had his revelation? Tradition tells us that though the Romans had dropped him in a vat of boiling oil, yes, they were trying to persecute the Christians, he survived. And so he was exiled to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea. And this is under the persecutions of Emperor Domitian. 
At this point, all the other disciples had been killed. John's brother James was the first one to be killed by beheading. You can find that in the book of Acts. It was King Herod who ordered that. But the rest is drawn from traditional sources. And those sources say that all of the disciples, one by one, died while taking the message somewhere. Some were in the area of Jerusalem and that area, but most of them went out. And there's traditions that say they went to India and Ethiopia and Germany and England and all sorts of different locations. But in all those locations, they were killed, taking the, the message of Jesus to those places. So generally, they were either crucified, stoned to death, clubbed to death, or speared through. Um, for Maybe you didn't want to know that, but I found that fascinating, the four different ways that it seemed that they were, they were killed in those days. So John is the last living member of the original 12 disciples. Now, who, did, who was this revelation for? Was it just for John, for his own personal benefit? Well, we find out in Revelation 1-4 that it's written to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, Asia, that... These were a, a number of named churches. Ephesus is one of them. That's the one that sticks in my head the easiest. But there's seven churches, and they're all in modern-day Turkey today. So if you went to modern-day Turkey, right where Turkey's getting close to Greece, uh, sort of the boundary between Asia and Europe, that's where these churches are and, and were. But who else is it written to? I think this is an incredible letter that's for everyone, and particularly for those who follow Jesus Christ. But let me just read you the prologue, the very beginning of the book, the first few verses, and you'll see that for yourself. It says, the revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, I'll pause there. A lot of translations will have used the word of Jesus Christ. I think they're both good, and they reveal something a bit different. But the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So if you are a servant of God or consider yourself serving God with your life, this, this book is for you. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words of prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So it was for the seven churches, and it's also for us today. And if you read it and hear it and take it to heart, you will be blessed. That's an incredible promise. So you might be the kind of person who says, well, I don't mind reading other parts of the Bible, but Revelation is so confusing. I, I just, I can't make heads or tail of it. Read it. You'll be blessed. There's lots of incredible stuff in there. And if you don't understand something, we'll join the club. People have been trying for millennium, trying to figure out all the different details of Revelation. And I don't know that anyone's really got it all cased yet. So what's the revelation that came to John? What's the, what's the revel, what is a revelation? I mean, if you watch HGTV, you know what a revelation is. It's like you wait and wait and wait and wait. At the end of the show, it's the big reveal. My wife watches lots of shows like this. Sometimes she's watching them late at night. And just as she's getting close to the house is almost renovated, she falls asleep. And so I just, you know, take the device and put it to bed. And she go, she's falling asleep there beside me. And I just think, she missed the revelation. She missed the big reveal. It's amazing. So sometimes I tell her the, more, the next day, you know, open concept, shiplap, you know, the usual drill. <laughs> so what got revealed? Revelation came to John 
A revelation he's supposed to pass on what got revealed. It was a, well, first of all, let me give you half of it. It was a revelation of future events. Now, I've got a second part. I'm going to tell you about two big parts of the revelation. There's lots I could talk about, but I want to talk about two big things today. First, it was a, is a vision of future events. Now, not everybody agrees about this. Some interpreters of the book of Revelation would say that most of these things, if they were future events, they happened just right away. They happened like right then, or they'd already happened, or they were happening in that day, and, and there's nothing that is farther into the future. I think most Christians and most scholars of the Bible and followers of Jesus today believe that there are future events events described in here that went fairways into the future. And uh, that's, I think, the majority position. But there are some who, who believe differently. But I, I believe that there, there are future events described. So let me just list some of the ones that, even if you've never read the book of Revelation, I bet some of these you've even heard of, just sort of in growing up. There's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's a bunch of plagues come on the earth just that are very reminiscent of the Egyptian plagues back in the days of Moses. There's an unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. There's two faithful witnesses who are killed by the beast, and then God raises them up again. And then there's the battle of Armageddon, and the mark of the beast, and the number 666, and coronavirus, and murder hornets. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding about that part. There is disease and pestilence, though, so maybe, uh, maybe coronavirus and murder hornets get in, get in there. But there's lots of things in there that you've probably heard of. And you say, well, I don't know how that works. And where does that all fit? And um, today I'm not going to unpack all those things. That's not even possible. That's weeks and weeks to talk about these kind of things. But I want to give some broad strokes that will help us understand some of the themes that are helpful to us. So that this book is a blessing to us in our day today. Let me talk just for a moment about a word that shows up more in other books of the Bible than in Revelation, but it's the one that people use to sum up the, this, some of these future events. They talk about the rise of the Antichrist. The rise of the Antichrist. Uh, the word in the Revelation that's used the most is the beast, right? And, the, and it talks about the beast's power, that there's one that will rise, and they'll, they'll have enormous power over people. And they can dictate what happens, who gets to buy and sell, and, they can, and they're, they've, they've, they're in control, and they're in charge, and they're persecuting the church. You know, this is the description. You know, through the centuries, there's been many people try to take a guess at who the Antichrist is. And I mean, even from the earliest days, you know, was it Nero, right? Nero was one of the early persecuting emperors of Rome. Was it, was it one of the Roman emperors who was the Antichrist? And then people have saw when Napoleon rose so quickly to power in Europe, they said, well, maybe that French guy, Napoleon, he's the Antichrist. And then Hitler came along, and some people in the Second World War said, you know, we've never seen anyone like this before. Maybe Hitler is the Antichrist. And then people have um, tried to describe people with great offices of power, like uh, they, they, whoever leads the United Nations, maybe that's the Antichrist. Or whoever is in charge of the uh, European Union, maybe that's the Antichrist. Or maybe it's one of the popes, or maybe it's an American president. These are all the kind of guesses that people have made along the way in who is the Antichrist. Or maybe it's sort of some shadowy figure behind the scenes, the Illuminati or something like that. You know, before the last hundred-some years, when people talked about Antichrist, they rarely used the in front of it. 
They rarely talk about the Antichrist. Isn't that they didn't read Revelation and see that there was a representative sort of at the pinnacle of, of this power. But mostly what they talked about was the power itself. The power itself. And so they would talk about being in opposition to Antichrist. Not the Antichrist, but to Antichrist. And I think they get that by reading the Bible. Let me read you a few verses that talk about us not, not trying to discover who the one person is, though I think that's still a, very possible that that's the reality of, of the future or could happen, but the actual spiritual power that we're to stand against. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So our struggle is not a physical struggle. As Christians, we are not called to raise up a physical army to fight, to conquer, to dominate. We have a more important battle to fight, and that's a spiritual battle against the forces of evil in the spiritual realm. So there are forces in this world that are evil, and we're called to fight a spiritual battle. And then 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, it says, though, For though we live in the world, right? We live in the world, we're citizens of the world, we, you know, we, we, we participate in this world in every way, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. That doesn't mean you can't be a Christian and be a soldier and all sorts of different things. But there's a higher battle and a more important battle. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, the weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. A stronghold is like a captivity that of evil over a person that they, they, uh, they, they can't escape. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So it's talking about ideas, thoughts, systems, powers that array themselves against the knowledge of God and the person of Jesus. That's what it means to be truly anti-Christ in this world. And even though there might be a figure, a person, who might rise up to be the anti-Christ, uh, the spirit of Antichrist has always been arrayed against the church, and the church has always been called to resist it in a spiritual battle. So, through the centuries, people have said, Wow, I feel like the spirit of Antichrist is oppressing the church. Now, I, in Canada, we have remarkable religious freedom. Uh, even probably hints of that being diminished gets us riled. The norm throughout the centuries is that Christians have been opposed by a spiritual force and it's manifested its way in, through economic might, military power, and state uh, dominance. So, you might have... That's why when you read about these people who are living under the dominance of Rome and you read that it's talking about the power of Babylon, it gets a little bit confusing. But you could almost trace from Babylon. Now, what was Babylon? What's the big deal about Babylon? They weren't even, in the time of this writing, they weren't a world power. But they were the first nation to take the Israelite people into captivity. Maybe I'll take that back. They're the second. The Assyrians were first. But they were the ones who took Jerusalem, the Babylonians. And so, when the Jewish people went to Babylon, they looked, look at this. The people of God 
have been conquered by this other culture, by this other nation, by this, by this ungodly uh, idol-worshiping culture. What are we to do in this culture? Now, very interesting what their prophets said to do at that time. They said, you know, be a part of the culture. Bless the culture. Bless the people. I mean, not everything necessarily can you bless if it's evil. But be a part. You know, plant gardens, live, be a part of commerce, be a part of education, be a part of, be a part of the world. Don't run away from it. But recognize that there is a power that wants to erase and eradicate the knowledge of your God. And so you see Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, all of them having to stand up at certain points and not give in, right? Uh, no praying for Daniel. You can't pray to anyone but the king. He had to stand up to that at the cost of his life. Uh, you must bow down to this golden statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to stand up to that at the p- potential cost of their lives. They had to resist the power of Babylon. So when, they're written, when this is written in the time of Rome, well, under Nero, under Domitian, under any persecuting empire, emperor, they could say, well, it's like that power of Babylon to erase our relationship with God still exists. It just exists in a different form. And it has throughout the centuries. And it does even today. Lots of people might look at the culture they're living in and say, you know, this is sort of like Babylon. Right? I was watching just a little video a while ago about church uh, crosses being removed from the top of churches uh, in China. And these are the state-sanctioned churches. These aren't the underground churches. These are the ones that the state has allowed to exist and as long as they obey the state's rules. But they're taking their crosses off and they're, they're doing different things to, to erase, eradicate, get rid of the knowledge of God. It's an anti-Christ, anti-Jesus, spirit, and power. So what do you do when you're faced with that? Well, you've got a choice. I think that's what that, you know, the whole number 666, the mark of the beast. I think that's where it comes down to. You have a choice. You either submit to that economic power, that military power, that state power that is attempting to eradicate and eliminate uh, the knowledge of God and, and uh, the knowledge, uh, the truth about Jesus and your allegiance to him or you stand up to that. So it's interesting the the, the mark of the beast. I don't know lots about the mark of the beast. You know, when my grandpa, I lived next door to my grandpa growing up, and he had lots of books on the future. And I remember going over, and I would thumb through his books on the future, uh, especially the ones that had pictures. And uh, I, I found it fascinating, because it described a future where it would be a cashless society. And I thought, wow, a cashless society. Now, I was like young at that time, and it wasn't until I was like 12 or 13 that I got a bank card. And bank cards pretty much emerged when I was 12 and 13. They weren't even a thing before that. And that wasn't about being cashless. That was just about getting cash at other places when you ran out of it. But a cashless society, uh, people coming to confiscate your Bibles, and uh, children being forcibly re-educated so that they didn't uh, follow Jesus. And I remember reading this and thinking, wow, that seems crazy that that could happen in Canada. Now, it didn't seem crazy it could happen other places because it was happening. Some of that was happening in the Soviet Union. Some of that was happening in other countries in the world. And so we said, okay, well, that happens there, but I don't know if it could ever happen here. If my grandpa was here today, I can't imagine what he would think about how things have changed. I can't imagine what he would think about the fact that we have Alexa in our home and she's spying on us. And we're okay with that. 
I can't imagine what he would think about the fact that Facebook is recording our offline activities. Wow. I don't know. My grandpa would, I mean, his mind would be blown, right? Or that our phones, they, the government can use them to track where we are. Grandpa would be just uh, blowing a gasket if he could see, if he could see what, um, what was happening today. If he lived in the time of coronavirus, could you imagine the fact that Grandpa would say, what, nobody's accepting cash anymore? Well, he would be making some uh, assumptions about all of those things. And if I told him about murder hornets, it would be the last of them. I think that would put him in the grave just there. It's amazing the day that we live in. And some of the things that we read in Revelation are not so far-fetched as they might have been maybe even 40 years ago. It's easy to see a power rising up to have economic, political, and military and state uh, power opposing the church. It's happening in lots of places in the world. Could it happen here? I guess that's the question. All through the centuries and even today, the question is simply a question of belonging and allegiance. You know the mark of the beast going on the forehead? Very interesting because there's two other parts of the Bible that, are, that I can think of where a mark goes on the forehead, something significant goes on the forehead. In the Old Testament, it was the Shema, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? The statement's about the Lord. And you would put it in a little tiny leather box. I don't even know what it looks like, but you could put it on your forehead, right? It was like binding the scripture on your forehead. So you'd walk around with this little leather tiny box with the Shema in it, and it would be a way of saying, I belong to God. I belong to God. So you, that's pretty significant. The other one is the seal of the Holy Spirit or, or the seal of God in the book of Revelation. So it's like you've got options with your forehead, right? You can rent space here. You're either going to say, I belong to God or I belong to what is anti-God. I belong to what is anti-Christ, what is anti-Jesus. I don't know what that choice is going to look like. You know, there's lots of theories about microchipping people, and you can already do that. That technology exists as well. But I thought about it, and I thought, I, I wonder if people will just accidentally slip into that or whether we'll really know. I, I tend to be of the camp saying that we'll really know. If we're close to God, and we have a choice come like that someday, I think we'll really know if we're close to God. I think that's the key. And, uh, and we'll be able to... Uh, do what's been done all through the centuries. You know when the Christians were being fed to the lions? Their choice was, you say Jesus is king. Well, we say there's no king but Caesar. You say Jesus is God and your master and your Lord. Well, we say there's no God or master or Lord but Caesar. Now choose. So on the pain of death, they chose. They chose that Jesus was king. And so it's the same uh, decision being made all over the world now and and um, if it is, eventually comes to a neighborhood near you, I don't know if it will. But if it does in your lifetime, uh, it's a question of belonging. Whose are you and who do you serve? Well, in these future events, we also have what's the, something called the Day of the Lord. So the, the Lord is going to bring judgment, right? We read about four horsemen and plagues and all those different things that are going to happen. And there's, there's so much in that. But... There's a day of judgment coming, and the, the question in the Bible about this day of judgment is who can stand in this day of judgment? When God decides that enough is enough and it's time to enter into uh, the world and come uh, to set things right, who's going to be able to stand? And the answer given 
in the Bible and in the book of Revelation is that it's his servants who will be able to stand. Those are the ones who will be able to stand in that day of the Lord. So when you think of Babylon or Rome or any empire that's come and gone, even if it's Washington or Ottawa, whatever empire that's come and gone, Jesus is triumphant over all those things. He is still in control. The message of revelation to the churches who are under persecution and the message to the church today who might be under pressure and persecution as well is that things are not as it seems. Jesus is still on the throne and he is still in charge. And so don't lose hope. Don't, be, don't live in fear, but live in trust that Jesus uh, will set things right. This book of Revelation is a book of encouragement to the church. It's a book of challenge for the church, but it reveals that Jesus is triumphant over all the powers of the world, and he will come to set things right and to vindicate those who've been faithful to him. But there's another big reveal, and the other big reveal is the revelation of Jesus himself. See, Jesus gets revealed many different, or in several different ways in the book of Revelation. One of the early ones is in the fact that he, is, he reveals himself to John. Now, John's already met Jesus. He's already met Jesus. But he has a very interesting encounter with him. He says in, ver- in verse 12 of chapter 1 of Revelation, he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of his brilliance. And it says that John, when he saw this, he fell face down. Now, in a way, John might, should have known this was coming. I mean, maybe John knew this was coming after death. Maybe he thought about all his fellow disciples that were already dead. And he thought, well, they're seeing Jesus in all of his glory. But John had had a glimpse of this. In fact, it's almost like there was a teaser trailer back in his time when he walked with Jesus to help him understand that this was coming. In fact, John wrote this in John 1.14. The word, this is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son. I used to read that and think, oh yeah, you saw Jesus do miracles. You saw Jesus die on the cross. You saw Jesus resurrected. That's, that, that was sort of my sum total thoughts of, well, that's enough. You saw the glory, and that is pretty glorious. But Peter, James, and John, remember Peter and the Sons of Thunder? They had a particular experience that the rest of the 12 didn't happen, didn't have. And it's recorded in three of the different gospel accounts about Jesus' life in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here's, Ma- here's Matthew, how he says it. He says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Now, I, I've thought about this. Why Peter, James, and John? James was the first to give his life for Jesus. He was the first. He was beheaded by Herod. And then Peter was the spokesman. 
He was the one who um, was going to represent the disciples when they spoke, even on the day of Pentecost and then even leading into the early days of the church. And then John was going to be the one who would last the longest. He would live the longest. In fact, tradition says he didn't, he wasn't uh, killed by the Romans, but that he actually left Patmos and probably went back to Ephesus and those seven churches to give them some oversight afterwards. Um, I, I sort of, my, this is my pet theory, it's not in the Bible, but I think that, you know, maybe, those, maybe there's specific reasons why God revealed himself specially to these three. It says, after six days he took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Did we just read that? Right? In Revelation it says, His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And here it says, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So this, this is called the transfiguration. Jesus was transformed from looking like you or me or any guy walking in first century Judea. I don't know what it looked like, whether he wore something that looked like a bathrobe like it is in plays or whatever. But here's a guy, maybe in sandals and a bathrobe type garment, and he's transformed so people see who he really is. He's glorified in this transfiguration moment. And Peter, James, and John, they're, all they can, they, they're aghast, they're blown away. When it's all over, Peter actually says in one of the gospel accounts, it says, uh, can we just stay here? Can we just build like a, 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 a dwelling place, like a tabernacle, a tent or something like that for you and Elijah and Moses? And can we just stay here forever? This is what it's like when Jesus is revealed. Is you just want to stay there. I don't know. if You, you maybe have never had an experience. I, no, I don't think we've ever had an experience quite like what this is. The thing I can get closest to is if you've ever been to a concert where the music just, it was like your favorite band, your favorite music, everything was just right about the concert. And then you got to the end, and they were sort of packing up to leave, and everybody just starts chanting, encore, encore, encore. And then they come back, and they play another one of their best. They probably saved one of their best songs, and you just, oh, it's so good. The whole crowd is singing. Everybody's into it. And then they go back again, and you're like, is it possible? Could we get one more encore? And you yell, encore, encore. And they come over a second song. It's so amazing. I imagine this is what Peter, James, and John were feeling. They were saying, uh, why do we even want to leave? Why do we even want to go back to our lives? Why do we want to go back to just sort of walk in the dusty roads of Judea? Let's stay here, Jesus, where we see who you really are. We see you in all your glory. Who would ever want to leave this? I just want encore after encore after encore of your presence and your majesty in my life. I want you, now that I've seen who you are. And I think in the book of Revelation, when Jesus is revealed, people have that kind of experience. They have that kind of experience where they're saying, whoa, like, we just want to be here. Like, people often ask, you know, will think, well, I don't know what I'll do in heaven. I, I think it's boring. Sometimes I try to tell them, everything you like on earth, you probably do in heaven. You like adventuring, you like exploring, you like hiking, you like uh, relationships, you like music, art, whatever. I, you'll just have that in heaven, and it'll be better. Like, you know, so I try to encourage them with those sorts of things. But probably I'm selling heaven short because the headliner of heaven is Jesus himself. It's seeing God for who he really is. You know, I don't know if any of you uh, did a catechism class when you were a kid. And maybe if you did, you might know the answer to what I'm going to ask. But the Westminster Short Catechism says this. What is the chief end of man? 
And the answer, or maybe you're already saying it at home. Are you saying it at home? What's the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To the chief end of man, the chief end of all human existence is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You say, well, I don't know. I don't, that, might, that sort of sounds boring. I think I'd get, uh, get bored of that after a while. And here's the thing. If you've experienced God, experienced his love, experienced his majesty, his power, his greatness, and on this earth, in the limited ways that we experience him now, the scripture says we see just now, it's just through a glass darkly. It's like, we're, we're, it's, like, it's like going to visit your grandparents through coronavirus and all you can do is talk through the plate glass window. And you want more. You want more than that. But that's all you get. Well, right now, if you've experienced God and you found it amazing in this life, imagine how much greater it's going to be to experience him there. So the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do you glorify God? Well, John Piper, uh, the pastor and author, he says it's very simple. You glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's how you do it. You, when you enjoy God... You're speaking of his worth and the satisfaction you derive from being in relationship to him. It's very similar to how do you glorify your mother on Mother's Day? How do you do it? What makes her look good? What makes her look glorious to others? When you enjoy her. When you enjoy her. So uh, when I tell you that I enjoy talking on the phone with my mom, that's all I really get right now because of coronavirus. But when I tell you that, that makes my mom look good, doesn't it? You enjoy talking to your mom? You must have a great mom. It's true, I do have a great mom. That makes her look good. It makes her look glorious, so to speak, right? When I, when I, when I say to somebody, I enjoy being with you, it's, it's an upgrade from, well, I guess it's Mother's Day. I better do my duty and spend some time with you, right? God doesn't dislike our duty. When people are like, well, I guess I go to church, or I guess I should spend some time with God. God doesn't despise that, but he desires our delight. He desires our passion. He desires for us to enjoy him. So when you delight in someone, you make them look good, because you show that they're satisfying to you. And that's what happens. When we glorify God, we find great satisfaction in that. When you delight in God, he's glorified. He looks good. You show how satisfying he is. When you say, well, look at how dutifully religious I am. I'm spending time in church. It doesn't necessarily make God look good or glorious. It might make you look good because look at how much you're sacrificing or something like that. But when you have great joy in God, he looks amazing. He, he is revealed for who he really is. So worship of God has two great outcomes. God is seen for how great he is and people find satisfaction in him. I remember... Uh, when I was young, seeing my dad in church. And my, we'd be singing some church songs, not necessarily the world's greatest band. In fact, probably, definitely not. And uh, just some old song that probably been written maybe 50 years before any of us were alive. And my dad would have tears streaming down his cheeks. Just tears flowing down his cheeks. And I think it's because God had become real to him. God had become real to him. The greatness of God had inspired him. The love of God he had experienced and it touched him. The majesty of God had captured his imagination. He found God to be satisfying. He had a taste of the enjoyment 
that can be found in God. And it's that taste of satisfaction in God that all of us long for, even if we don't know it, even if we're just trying to fill that void with something else. So here you have this in chapter 4 and verse five, and in chapter 5 of Revelation, you have this second reveal of God. The first reveal of God you have is that Jesus, he shows up, his, sun is, his face is shining like the sun, which again, John has seen that before. He had the teaser trailer back at the Transfiguration. Now you have the second, the second image. And it's that John is allowed into the throne room. And in the throne room, there's one who sits on the throne. And then there's all these worshiping ones. Uh, it's amazing the scenery in the thrones. So there's, there's, in verse 3 it says, there's one who sat, sits there, has the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. I, he looks like jewels? I don't know what that looks like. But that must be amazing. Then there's a rainbow. Not just a rainbow that goes like this, but a rainbow that goes around the throne. It's like an emerald, and it encircles the throne. You're like, okay, well, if you're going to worship God, go all out. Right? We have some nice light towers, but nothing like a rainbow that encircles the throne. Wow. And then you've got 24 elders. They're dressed in white, crowns of gold on their head. And, and from the throne is coming flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Boy, John, son of thunder, would have loved that show. Light and thunder and, and all those things. And then lamps are blazing, and the Spirit of God is there. And in front of the throne, there's a sea of glass, clear as crystal. It's like an amazing setup. And you've got living creatures that are, I don't have time to describe all this, living creatures who are flying. You've got uh, 24 elders who fall down before him. And they're saying things like this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy is just like you're saying, you're perfect, you're perfect. Perfect. You ever had that moment in your life where, where just something you just say is, it's perfect. It's just perfect, right? You know, we all want a perfect Mother's Day. Probably lower your expectations, but still, we want those. Those moments where we just go, this is just perfect, or you're perfect. I hope you felt that on your wedding day. You're perfect for me. That's awesome, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And then later on they say, you're worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So there's just worship happening. And then you see that angels get involved, but not just a few angels. 10,000 times 10,000. Is that, um, I think it's about 10 million? 100 million maybe. And maybe it's 100 million. It's a lot of angels. I think it's 100 million. Circling round and round. You've got a rainbow. You've got elders who are flying. You are, and I mean, creatures who are flying. Elders who are bowed down. Angels who are circling the whole thing. And the moment comes. And it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And John has got to this moment in this time of worship where he just wants, I want an encore. I want more. I want more. Even though this is amazing, I want more. And suddenly it's like things screech to a halt because nobody can open the scroll. And it says, John wept. I wept and wept because no one was found who, who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So I don't know how long he cried. Can you imagine? Everybody's just, wait, we, we so want to go on to the next thing, the scroll to be opened, and yet it can't be opened. And then one in heaven, and then it says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. 
See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So what does he hear? Here comes a lion. Here comes a conquering king. Here comes the one who is in charge. Right? What's the lion? He's the king of the jungle, right? Here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's so exciting. That's a prophetic word that was given in the Old Testament about the one who would come, the Messiah, the one who would come. Here comes the lion. That's what he hears. But what does he see? When he turns to look for the lion, this is what he sees. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Now this, is, this might be confusing. Uh, he's like, whoa, they said that a lion was coming. How come there's a lamb? lamb? And how come that lamb looks like it's been slain, like there's blood on it or something like that? How, wh- what's going on here? I thought a conquering king was coming. Not a, a lamb, not a weak lamb who's been under some duress. What, what is going on? And here's the big thing that I think a lot of people don't understand. We're looking for Jesus to come as a lion. We're looking for economic might, political might, military might, and state control. And yet, God has not set that up for Christians. So many times Christians have rushed to that. Right? You think of things like the Crusades or, or some of the battles between Catholics and Protestants and stuff like that. It's like, if only we can get the might of the government, if only we can have strength like that, then God's kingdom will be established. But God has always been establishing his kingdom not by Christians killing others, but by Christians allowing others to kill them. It's the path of Jesus. When Jesus... Jesus became the Lion of Judah. He became the conquering king when he allowed others to place a cross on his back. When he, you know what? He didn't have to. He wasn't forced into it. It wasn't that Jesus was captured and couldn't get away. He could get away. Bible says that's true. He could have called 10,000 angels and be out of that situation. But Jesus embraced that for the sake of you and me. Jesus embraced the cross. How did Jesus conquer? By being killed. What did he conquer? Well, the same spiritual anti-Jesus, anti-God, anti-Christ forces in the world that held people under, that that keep people under their sway, that keep people living in the same rut of selfish narcissism, just looking out for number one. living seated on the throne of our own lives without any regard for God. Going our own way, not going God's way. And so Jesus came, took the cross on his back, was nailed to that cross, took, he was slain like a lamb. On the weekend of the Passover, all the Jews would have known what the Passover was about, what it, what, why a slain land was important because of their exit from Egypt. All of that history would have came to bear on Jesus, would have, been, would have been symbolized, would have been shown in who Jesus was. So how did he conquer? How did he become Jesus victorious over all the nations of the world? The one before every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He did it by being slain, by dying on the cross for our sins. 
And so here the lamb is presented and they sing a new song. They say, you're worthy to take the the scroll, to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Jesus' plan was to create a spiritual family, a spiritual people from every nation of the world. This is one of the reasons why Christians really just can't be racists. Because our spiritual family is made up of all the nations of the world. If there's a people group out there you don't like, you've got to change your attitude if you're a follower of Jesus. Because they're going to be in your spiritual family because that's God's plan and that's God's design. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, 100 million. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So how do we respond? How do we respond today? I, I think there's two responses that are, are, are natural to respond to what we've heard today. The one is, uh, I want to say that you can be loved and transformed by God's love like John was. You might be a son of thunder or a son of something else, it doesn't matter. God wants to pour his love into your heart. He does love you. He wants you to experience that love and to know that you are loved by God. In spite of all that you've done and all that you are, you can be fully known, you already are, fully known by God, and he fully loves you. Now, will you respond to that love? Will you shun it? Will you avoid it? Or will you open up to it? You can be changed by the love of God like John was. So that's my first thing. And the second thing is that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, the call to the church, there was many things he wrote to the seven churches, but the one that stood out to me that I'm just sharing with you is the call to return to your first love. Return to the all-satisfying love of God in your life. Maybe something else dazzled you. Maybe something else you thought was better, and you ran after it. And you're finding, maybe, that it's empty. Or maybe you haven't found that yet, but you will. And when you do, return to the love of God. Return to the one who died for you. Return to the one who loves you more than anyone else. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the book of Revelation. In all of its perplexing, uh, difficult passages, there is so much powerful truth there for us today. And I thank you that um, you showed yourself to John. And God, all we've got is the paper version. We long for the live version. We long for the encounter with you. And we'll probably be like John, falling on our faces and overwhelmed by it all. But Lord, we long for the empty parts of our lives to be filled and saturated with your presence. God, I thank you that you allow us to experience you in this life as well. That it's not just something for when we die. It's not just in, in, in the future, but it's something stabilizing and, and penetrating and significant for our life now. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who's hearing what I'm sharing today, 
that they'd say yes to you. That they say yes to you. That when it comes to that ultimate choice of who do I belong to, they wouldn't say, well, I belong to this faction or that faction or this power or I've aligned myself with this might in the world. All those nations, all those empires that have stood and, and tried to crush the church as, through the centuries, they've come and gone. They've come and gone. And the ones that exist now, they will come and go as well. And only you endure. And so, Lord, we want what lasts forever. We want relationship with you. So, Lord, we want to just say yes to you. You have our love. You have our allegiance, our loyalties to you. We know that that will probably mean trouble at certain points for us. But, Lord, we embrace you. You laid down your life for others so that they could have relationship with God. Help us to do the same. Lord, I pray for any Christians who are listening and they just say, man, that first love, it seems like a distant thing. I remember when I was passionate for Christ. I pray that you would give them a brand new experience with you. I pray that you give them the power of a brand new affection for you in their hearts. I pray that they'd ask for it. They'd cry out for it. They'd be like uh, uh, someone who's dying without water and that's the way they would cry out for your spirit to come in Fill them afresh and give them a brand new experience of the love that is found in you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us on Mother's Day. God bless you. Have an incredible day. And I hope you get a chance to bless some of the mothers in your life. Hey, we're so glad you joined us today. We hope you stay connected with us online on our website, Facebook, and YouTube throughout the week. If you want prayer right now, we have prayer teams standing by ready to pray with you. Call in or send us an email. If you're new, check out our website to learn more about us, but also go to hillcrestmj.com slash connect card and fill out that card. We'd love to get to know you. Most importantly, if you decided to become a follower of Jesus today, firstly, we are so excited for you, but secondly, would you tell someone whether that be someone close to you, someone at the church, or even call into our prayer teams right now. This is the most important decision you'll make in your lifetime, and we want to celebrate with you and help you navigate those next steps. Again, thanks for joining us. Stay connected with us online, and we'll see you next week.